Tere, and welcome to History of Estonia podcast, episode 46, Enforced Industrialization and Collectivization. In this episode, we learn how the economy of Estonia was brought in line with the economy of the Soviet Union. We learn from the book, History of Estonia, how this happened, and more importantly, why this happened. Apparently, there are many rare earth minerals in the town of Silamai that are very valuable and difficult to extract. In 1946 to 48, the former oil shale processing plant in Silamai was rebuilt by Soviets to extract uranium oxide from the locally mined Dictinoma argillite ore. During that time, many war prisoners were employed at the construction and mining activities in Silamai. The uranium extraction process at the Silamai plant was developed in collaboration with a nearby Narva plant and produced mainly a 40% uranium concentrate at the onset of the plant production. The local mining operation continued until 1952. In 1957, Silamai officially gained town status. By that time, it had already grown beyond its historical boundaries and included several neighboring settlements. During the Soviet regime in Estonia, Silamai remained to be a closed town due to the secrecy and security measures related to the uranium production activities at the local plant. And what is meant by a closed town is exactly what it sounds like. Only authorized people were allowed in or out of the town. By the way, if you have never been to Silamai, I certainly suggest a trip as the town is very attractive, although eerily quiet due to the construction of the town's Stalinist architecture and the fact that there's not much development and business there today. During its operations, the Silamai plant dumped the processing waste into a tailing pond at the northwestern part of Silamai near the Baltic Sea shoreline. By the 1990s, the pond presented a serious ecological hazard due to leaching of radioactive and other harmful particulates and dissolved materials into the Baltic Sea. In the 2000s, measures were undertaken to secure the containment of the waste at Silamai. Today, Silamai's abundance of rare earth metals still makes the town relevant. In what is probably considered news and not history, on November 17, 2021, Canada's Neo Performance Materials announced plans to expand its rare earth operations in Silamai to produce super strong magnets for electric vehicles, counting on European Union funding to make this viable. Estonia gave its backing for the plans by Neo, which already has a rare earth separation plant in Silamai to develop a European hub there to produce rare earth alloys and magnets. The economy of the Estonian Republic had been based on agriculture, relying on a farm economy and industry relying on local resources and a local workforce. The destruction of the former economic system had already begun in the first year under Soviet rule in 1940 to 41 and continued during the war. The economic model of a small state, which had developed during the years of independence, was destroyed in the post-war years when, simultaneously with the restoration of Soviet power, a Stalinist economic policy was applied in the Estonian SSR, 
The characteristic features of this economic policy were forced industrialization, forced collectivization, which meant collective farms, and the development of a rigid planned economy in all spheres of life. Forced Industrialization The advanced development of heavy industry had been the cornerstone of the Soviet economy for years. A similar economic policy was forcibly introduced in the post-war Estonian SSR. The oil shale industry, mechanical engineering, and light industry became the main areas developed in Estonia. In June 1945, the Defense Committee of the Soviet Union adopted a decree according to which, in the oil shale area of Viru County, the oil shale industry was to be expanded on a vast scale. During a five-year period, more than 40% of all investment was to be made in this area of industry. The Estonian SSR was actually turned into an economic backyard of Leningrad. The Viru County oil shale industry had to supply Leningrad with gas and to produce fuel for the Baltic fleet. In 1948, in Katle the first factory for oil shale gas was opened, using the ineffective technology. At the same time, the gas pipeline to Leningrad was finished. It was only in 1952 that the gas pipeline from Katle to Tallinn was opened. In the oil shale area, new mines and settlements were constantly added. The centers of the region, Katlejarve and Silamai, received town status. In Silamai, a secret factory for military production was built. The workforce for the factory was brought from other regions of the Soviet Union. They arrived with their families, generally. Silamai became a closed town, as did Paldiski where strangers had no business with each other. Mechanical engineering and the metal industry were extended. Initially, former factory buildings were restored to produce equipment needed all over the Soviet Union. The industry of the Estonian SSR began to produce equipment for the oil shale and the oil industry, which were boring machines, derricks, etc. The automatic equipment for making boilers electric motors, and other production. Volta became a big factory, which produced 10% of all electric motors made in the Soviet Union. The official reason given for the extensive development of heavy industry, first of all machine and metal industry, was the Estonian tradition of heavy industry and extensive trained staff. It resulted in the construction of huge factories in Estonia, which did not correspond to Estonian proportions. The raw materials for the factories were brought in and their production were taken out of Estonia. The authorities of the Estonian SSR had no information about the production or number of workers of several factories. These factories, Dvigatel in Tallinn, Baltijets in Narva, and many others, belonged to the complex of military production of the USSR and were subject directly to respective departments in Moscow. Beside heavy industry, light industry also developed rapidly in Estonia in the post-war years. The cotton mills in Tallinn and in Narva were restored and reconstructed. 
the staff for the factories were mainly brought from other regions of the USSR. The production of both the Baltic and Craneholm factories was taken into the markets of the Soviet Union. The restoration and industrialization of the towns was accompanied by extensive building. This increased the production of building materials and demanded extra workers. Therefore, the building industry became the main cause of migration, bringing a plentiful workforce to Estonia from other parts of the USSR during the whole period of Soviet rule. In this process of industrialization, the private sector finally disappeared from industry. In 1947, the last small enterprises in Estonia were nationalized. Land Reform The first thorough Soviet reorganization in agriculture was to carry through the land reform started in 1940 and abolished during the German occupation. The Supreme Soviet of the ESSR adopted the necessary law in September 1944. The Soviet land reform first meant expropriation or nationalization. In 1944-47, more than 927,000 hectares were expropriated in the Estonian SSR. From the state land fund, two-thirds were divided between new settlers, while one-third of the land remained in the state reserve. The post-war land reform defined the area of a farm as 30 hectares. Families who had cooperated with the German occupation authorities could not have more than five to six hectares of land. The majority of their property and livestock were also expropriated. The land reform was generally finished in the spring of 1945. It was improved and modified further until the summer of 1947. By the end of the land reform, there were about 136,000 farms in the territory of the Estonian SSR. One-third of those were held by the new settlers and those who had received additional allotments. One-third were the farms reduced by the land reform, and one-third were untouched by the reform. The land reform did not improve social or economic conditions in rural areas, not to mention the relations between people. The households of the new settlers did not generally develop into viable farms. They were too small, less than 15 hectares on average. The level of production technology was low, and even more essential, the new landowners were not ready to become masters of their farms. The expropriation of land often handicapped the farms that had been successful before. The free redivision of land increased tensions between people. Soviet authorities were pleased with the appearance of class hostility in rural areas because they facilitated the way for later collectivization of farms. Farmers had several duties and obligations to the state. The most important of these was the obligation to sell agricultural products to the state. Farmers had to give an established amount of grain, potatoes, meat, eggs, and other agricultural products to the state for a symbolic payment. Bigger farms had much greater duties than the smaller ones. In addition, farmers had defined labor duties such as tree cutting in winter, and often they had to do urgent community jobs such as repairing roads. During the land reform, state agricultural enterprises, state farms, 
and centers of agricultural equipment and tractors, as well as centers lending horses, began to be formed in the Estonian SSR. The latter were primarily meant to assist the new settlers. Their share of the total agricultural production and cultivation of land was rather modest. Formations of Collective Farms During the land reform, farmers received acts of perpetual usage of the land. But by the end of 1946, the tendency was already beginning among the leaders of the ESSR to start the formation of collective farms, which rapidly accelerated due to pressure from Moscow. In May 1947, the Central Committee of the Communist Party and the Soviet Union adopted a directive on the formation of collective farms in all three Baltic Union republics. In the autumn of the same year, five collective farms were formed in the Estonian SSR, and according to the regulations of the Soviet Union, the process of defining kulak, farmers began. The same method had been used for mass collectivization in the Soviet Union at the beginning of the 1930s. Moscow did not accept a suggestion from the leaders of the Estonian SSR, primarily from Karatom, to resettle the so-called kulaks within the boundaries of Estonia. The idea was also opposed by many local Stalinists. The resistance of the farmers was broken by deportations in March 1949. As a result of the March deportations, an atmosphere of fear was created which caused mass voluntary joining of collective farms. By the end of 1949, 65% of farms had joined collectives. In the following years, those farms that had not joined the collectives were made to do so, or to liquidate their households by an additional increase in the tax burden. Many farmers were forced to liquidate their households and leave for the towns. By the end of 1951, collectivization in the Estonian SSR was complete. More than 95% of all farms had been collectivized. At the initial stage of collectivization, a collective farm was formed in practically every village. In some cases, a collective farm connected two or three neighboring villages. The formation of small collective farms was less painful for farmers since people living in the same village supported each other, and the elected leaders of the collective farms were the more active farmers from the same village and thus familiar to the people. The biggest drawback of small collective farms was that they were not economically viable. Therefore, in 1950, a process started for uniting small collective farms into bigger ones. The collective leaders were also replaced. The loyalty of the new leaders to the Soviet regime was not sufficient for the effective running of the collective farms. It accelerated the decline of the collective farm system. By 1953, Estonian agriculture was in worse state than after the German occupation in 1944. According to official propaganda, all collective farms were masters of the collective farms. The real situation proved different. They were just wage workers. Collective work soon changed the attitude of the farmers who did not feel they were owners anymore, and apathy became the dominant feeling in collective farms. 
As a result of socialist industrialization and collectivization, an economic policy was applied in Estonia, which considered neither the local resources of raw materials and workforce, nor the historically developed traditions of production and needs. The economic life of the Estonian SSR was subjected to a planned economy at all levels. The plans for development, starting from the Union Republic and ending with the single farm, were all worked out at a higher level in Moscow. The rigid form of planned economy excluded any social structure typical of the market economy and meant a transfer to a centralized economy. In turn, this brought far-reaching demographic and social consequences, which are still influencing life and development in Estonia. The most essential demographic consequence of centralized economy was the influx of numerous workers from other regions of the Soviet Union. After the borders of Estonia were, quote, rectified by the Soviet Union, the Estonian SSR was initially a single nation union republic. As the absolute majority of the population, 854,000 were Estonians. The following years dramatically changed the situation. In the years 1945 to 1950, the population of Estonian SSR increased by 170,000 immigrants from other Union republics. They arrived as a result of organized enrollment, especially building the oil shale industry, but also on their own initiative or at the invitation of relatives and acquaintances who had arrived earlier. The new settlers initially came from the northwestern province of Russia. The majority of them were unskilled workers and former peasants. They brought with them the different traditions, habits, attitudes, and ways of life. The immigrants formed compact Russian-speaking settlements in Estonia. The vast immigration reduced the role of Estonians among the population. According to the 1959 census, the Russian-speaking minority formed one-quarter of the population. The process of internationalism of the Estonian population was meant to guarantee the merging of Estonians into the brotherly family of the Soviet people. As a result of the advanced development of industry, the towns kept growing and the majority of immigrants settled there. The formation of collective farms accelerated the migration of peasants into towns. In 1945, one-third of the population lived in towns. By 1953, the proportion was more than half. The material situation of the town dwellers was worse than in the rural areas after the war. In towns, ration cards were used to supply people with foodstuffs and industrial goods. Collectivization ruined the majority of rural population. In 1947, Monetary reform was carried out, ration cards were abolished, and the setting of prices was regulated. In conclusion, for a long time, Soviet socialism did not guarantee a decent standard of living to either town dwellers or the rural population. The extensive immigration raised the language problem, especially in the eastern part of Viru County and Tallinn, which was, quote, solved in favor of the Russian language. The language problem did not trouble the immigrants, but mainly the native Estonians. 
because regions developed in Estonia where it was impossible to cope without a knowledge of Russian. This is where we will leave our narrative for today. The topic regarding migration into Estonia has always been a hot topic, and we will likely cover it again as it is complicated, with a lot of people's feelings to consider. When I think about this topic in my study of Estonian history, my mind takes a view of history through many generations or even centuries, as demographics slowly but assuredly change from what it once was to what it will become. This fact remains constant everywhere. The Finno-Ergic people used to take up a lot more territory on the Eurasian landmass than it currently does. But due to war and migration, the numbers of what historically would be considered Finno-Ergics living in St. Petersburg and the Peskov regions have mostly been replaced by Russian speakers. The point that I'm trying to make is that territories that these people once lived in have been taken over by Russian speakers. So if one day somebody asks you why NATO is necessary in Estonia and the other Baltic countries, hopefully it's an easy answer for you. Estonia is a small country and it may not be able to survive as a viable culture if it were to be conquered again by Russia. And this is where we will leave our historical timeline for today. My family and I are still planning on visiting Estonia over the Christmas holiday. We are not quite sure how the Omicron variant of COVID will affect our travels, though. If you would like to say hello while I am in Tallinn, I will give a time and place where we can meet up in a future episode. So until next time, Nagamiseni.